0: You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Word prayer this morning. Father, we come this morning. We thank you for what we've experienced already. We thank you for the privilege of coming and gathering together to worship you today. We thank you for the sweet fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for friends who have gathered as well. Lord, we just pray now as we come this morning that our minds would be attuned to what you have for us today. As we've sung the songs, as we've listened, as we've heard the word, I pray, Lord, that you now, by your Spirit, would work in our midst. God, we need you. And Lord, I pray that we can celebrate today the thousand ways that that you have done so many great things for us. But Lord, we need your spirit to work in our midst as we proclaim your word. I pray that you would be magnified and glorified. Lord, I know that you're here, and I pray that you would manifest yourself in a great and mighty way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. We were here a couple weeks ago now, and so I won't take the time to review everything. But in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8... We were stretched a little bit a couple of weeks ago when we heard the command of the Lord, when the Lord said to Samuel, to tell to Saul, destroy, utterly destroy all of the Amalekites. And two weeks ago we wrestled through some of those things, maybe presenting more questions and answers. But there's a couple of things that we learned from that text two weeks ago. The first is this who God is, who He is. We learn that God is holy, God is righteous, God is just. That this God cannot stand sin. He hates it. He knows what it is. He knows the scourge that is on our planet. And He is holy and He will deal with sin. We saw that not only will He deal with sin, but we saw how He views sin. That God is grieved over the sin of mankind. And not just the sin of mankind, but your sin and my sin. He's grieved. His heart is grieved over that. And that he will ultimately judge sin. Whether it's the sin of the Amalekites or our sin, God will judge. Acts 17 verse 30 says this, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And God is saying, listen, there is coming a day when I will judge all of mankind by one person, by one man. If you have any question who that man is, he finishes the statement by this. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. God assures us that someday every man and woman will, will come into account, will give an account, for their lives. And they will be judged by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again, and is alive forevermore. And so we see that in first in Samuel fifteen, one through eight. And this morning what we're going to do as we finish this chapter is I, I want to look now at the heart of biblical faith. What is biblical faith? Um, it is a response to the God who has revealed himself. In essence, that's what it is. And this morning we'll see a bad example of that in the life of Saul. And then we'll see a good example of this response to a God that is spoken in the life of Paul from Romans chapter 12. So look, if you would, at our text now, chapter 15, verse number 9. But Saul, after this command, but Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and the oxen and all the fatlings of the rams and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed utterly. Verse number 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, This is God speaking, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, For he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And it's interesting, not only is Samuel grieved by this, but the Bible says that God is grieved by the sin of Saul. Listen, and let me remind you of something. This God that we serve is not some cold slab of concrete that's unaffected by what we do. The truth is, the Bible tells us that this God is grieved over our sin. He's grieved by it. Um, His heart is touched by our sin. We see the intense sorrow of God over human sin. It's not as if he thinks, well, you win some, you lose some, no big deal. He's grieved by it. Verse number 12. Then when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And this is interesting. In, in the Bible says that he set up a place. And what it literally means is after this victory with the Amalekites, Saul sets up this, this memorial to himself. Saul is somewhat modest. And what he does is he sets up this monument proclaiming the great victory that he had. As we view the life of Saul, we see over and over again that he is self-promoting. He's always interested in Saul. It's always about him. And so Samuel comes to find him. He's left, but he's left this great monument of his recent victory. Verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And the truth is, we know that he didn't, but again, we we see Saul here is almost oblivious or incapable of seeing the fact and the devastating seriousness of disobeying God's word. I've done everything, verse 14, and Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and lowering of the oxen which I hear? And here is a prophet, he comes and 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 Saul salutes him and says, "I've done everything that God wanted me to do. I destroyed everything, utterly destroyed it." And Samuel is there and he hears ba ba. I'm not a farmer, but I think that's what sheep do, right? Ba. And he hears mmm mmm. And and Samuel says, "Wait a minute. You were destroy everything. These noises are something. Something's not right here, Saul." Verse 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest have we utterly destroyed. And here again, we we talked about this two weeks ago. We asked you to look at the chapter and see if there's anything that's interesting that, that stands out. And this was one thing that was mentioned. That here, first, Saul blames everyone else. It's the people. They brought the animals. They brought the king back. It's their fault. But then he says this. But, but we did it to make a sacrifice to thy God. Not Saul's God. Samuel's God. And, and here's where I think we find the difference with, with Saul. He's a religious guy. Right? He, he, he understands what you're supposed to do. But there is no relationship there at all. It's not his God. It's not personal for him. It is Samuel's God, not Saul's. Verses 16-19 through now, we see the rebuke of, of Samuel, and he's very straightforward. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stay, or be quiet, enough. And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me. When you were small, it was okay. When you were humble, you're okay. God made you the king over Israel. And he sent you out to consume the Amalekites, verse number 18. Number 19. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? And now Samuel confronts him and says, wait a minute. You were told to specifically do something. You disobeyed the voice of the Lord. Now watch Saul's response to this. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag the king of uh, of, uh, Amalek, Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen and the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal." And here we have Saul, when confronted with evil now, has this contorted reasoning. He's going to make some excuses here. And here's what he believes. He believes that formal worship somehow substitutes from an obedient life. That the external devotions can can replace the internal submission. God had clearly commanded him to do something. He just disregarded it. Saul's a lot like people today who, they're very religious. You know, the kind of person who goes to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, maybe they'll catch a Wednesday. I mean, they are there. They're there. They are meticulous in their tithing. God says give a tenth, and so what they do is they write the check, $15.37. Man, be generous. Round up. Make it 40 cents, right? Right? But this is is it. I'm going to stick this. I'm going to give my $15.37. They pray religiously. They have their time where they go and they set it apart. I pray for five minutes a day before I leave my house. I have a Bible schedule and I read the Bible, three chapters a day, five on Sunday. I'm going to get through all of it. And yet, when the Spirit of God confronts them about something, They believe that all of this religious activity can take the place of what God has called them to do in their lives. When the Spirit of God and the voice of God says, wait a minute, what about your attitude? What about your bitterness? What about your gossip? What about your unkindness to your neighbors and your family and your friends? What about your inward motivation for why you do what you do? And we can ignore that because we do all these other religious things that we think somehow, way, God is really going to be happy about this. So I can ignore what the Spirit of God tells me in my heart to do and obey Him as long as I do all of these religious things. And this was Saul's attitude. And he verbalizes it now. It's contorted reasoning. But not only that, we see excuse making. It's never his fault. It's always somebody else. The people did it. The soldiers did it. And the truth is, they had nothing to do. Saul was the king. It was his responsibility. And yet he blamed everyone else. Listen to me. The person who is good at making excuses is rarely good at anything else. We have a generation of people today, and they want to blame everybody. It's my parents' fault. Ever heard that before? Some of you use that. Can I tell you, if you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, you've got to quit using that now because you're an adult. And nobody comes out of childhood unscathed. We all had parents who blew it, who made mistakes, who did dumb things. But it's my parents' fault. It's my kids' fault. If you knew my kids... We were out the other day and we, we went to a, a class a special needs class at McGregor, John McGregor. And one of the teachers were there, and uh, they were talking about Gregory, who does some work there. Sorry, Greg, he's embarrassed, and I know. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll make it up to you. I'll give you a dollar later on. Um, and the teacher was saying, man, we just love Greg, and they're going on and on. And then she started talking. It wasn't teacher, it was workers. worker. She started going, man, I wish my kids were like that. And she started talking about her kids. They're terrible. They're, they're lazy. They have no direction. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I want to help her out. I say, oh, Greg's really a bad kid. Don't, you know, I'm trying to make it better for her. And she's telling me how terrible her kids are. And her, her, her friend's kids are terrible. And it's all their fault. And on and on and on. We blame everybody. It's my kid's fault. It's the church's fault. Can I tell you something? If you're in a church for any length of time, somebody in that church is going to hurt you. I promise you. I make a promise to all of our people. I promise them this, if you're here long enough, I will personally offend you. Right? How many people can attest to that? You can raise, oh look, don't raise it that quick. That was not, right? You're here long enough, I'm going to say or do something. You know why? Because we're full of imperfect people. And, and we're here, and listen, I know people have been hurt in church. you got to quit blaming church, man. Society, the government, I mean it goes on and on. Listen to me. You can continue to do that like Saul did that, but it doesn't help anything. Nothing. Zilch. Zero. Nada. Null. No. Nothing. And if you continue to do that, you will never grow. Never. You know what Saul's response should have been? You're right, Samuel. I sinned. I blew it. It's all me. It's me. It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. But He doesn't do that. He blames everybody else for His problems, and it's not helpful. It's not healthy. It's sinful. It's sinful. And He thinks somehow He's going to get him off the hook with His disobedience to God. Verse number 22. Here is Samuel's response to the excuses and contorted reasoning of Saul. Verse number 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord also rejected thee from being king. Samuel says, I hear your excuses, Saul. I I, I hear your contorted reasoning. And here's what he says. You're crazy, You're crazy. What kind of God do you think you're serving? Do you think that He delights in sacrifices more than obedience? you think He's happy about that? Do you think He's more concerned with dead animals on an altar than a heart that is living and obedient to Him? You have some misconception about God. It is not right. It is not right at all. God doesn't need our donations. What does Psalm 50 tell us? Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. Two verses later he says, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. God doesn't need a gift from you or from me. He doesn't need any of those things. And yet Saul believed he could disobey God and yet if he did religious stuff, he'd be okay. And Samuel says that's not the case. That's not the heart of biblical faith. The heart of biblical faith says, I will respond to the God who has spoken in obedience. Obedience surpasses sacrifice. Obedience surpasses ritualism. Obedience surpasses religion. And to willingly disobey is to rebel against God. It is the height of arrogance and presumption. And look what Samuel says about about this act of his. He said, it's equivalent to witchcraft. He said, Saul, when, when you decided to say, God, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do something religious instead. He said, it's like witchcraft or divination. You rejected God. You've adopted another religion. It's not about me anymore, God. It's about you. That's a problem. That's a problem. Matter of fact, it's a capital offense in Israel's economy during this time. And then he says, it's stubbornness. It's arrogance. It's insubordination. It's idolatry. You're removing God from his rightful place. You rejected him, and he's rejected you. All the smoke and fats from the altar could never replace the pleasure God would have from the sacrifice of, of Saul's own will. God, God wasn't concerned about an animal or a sacrifice. He was concerned about Saul saying, God, here's my life. I hear your voice. I'm going to respond in faith and do what you've asked me to do. That's what God's pleased with. You know, I read that text the last couple of weeks. And it just drew me to Romans chapter 12. Let's go back there now this morning as we make some closing thoughts. As we compare now Saul's life to Paul's life, Romans chapter 12. I made mention already of of chapter 12. Let's begin verse number 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I beseech, I beg, I implore you. Uh, Therefore, he's referring back to everything that Paul has done in the past. Paul says in chapter 12, Listen, I want to beg you now, by the mercies of God, everything that I've talked about before this point, remember what I said? Chapters 1 through 11, all about the gospel. The mercies of God are about the gospel. Our faith is rooted in what took place at Calvary. Um, That's what our faith is about. And Paul says, listen, I want you to think back about that, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is simply this, that all of us as rebel sinners, we've rebelled against God. We've turned our back on him. We said, I'll do it my own way. We're under God's condemnation and wrath. We deserve His justice. And yet God steps in through the redemption of His Son and provides a substitutionary atonement for mankind. We call this the great exchange. His life for mine. Perfection for that which is guilty. His righteousness for my ungodliness. And the doctrine of the gospel is so powerful that Paul breaks out into this praise at the end of chapter 11. The flow from doctrine or theology to doxology or praise, thanksgiving, and then he flows to duty, what we're supposed to do. This morning, listen to me. The greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment to him will be. The song had it, writer had it right when he said, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this morning, believer, listen to me. The, the more we understand and comprehend what Jesus Christ has done for us on Calvary, the greater our commitment will be to him. Some of us, we sit back and we do nothing. And the reason we do nothing is we have never thought about what was purchased for us at Calvary. Jesus Christ gave his life for your sin and mine. And so he says, and because of that, there's an obligation for us. Look at the rest of the verse in chapter 1. He says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And that, and that phraseology takes us back to the Old Testament, a sacrifice. You understand that. They took the animal, they put it on the altar, they lit it on fire. It was completely consumed. And Paul says, in light of what Jesus Christ has done for you, we praise, we're in wonder of it. Now here's what the duty is. The duty is now, give yourself a living sacrifice, holy to God. Our attitude after understanding the gospel should be, God, here is my life, completely consumed. The body means everything that we are, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. My friend, what God wants from believers today is this. He wants our lives. He wants this new life, a life in him. And sometimes we think, yeah, pastor, that's good. That's for you. That's for the elder, that's for the pastor, that's for the deacon. No, Romans was written to all of us, to every believer, that Paul says, when you understand what you have in Christ, the natural flow from that is praise, and then there is a duty. There is something I ought to do in light of what God has done for me. He says, a living sacrifice. And then he tells us, it is reasonable. It is reasonable. Some translations say it's your spiritual worship. But what Paul's saying here is, listen, follow the logic. If Jesus Christ died for your sin, was buried, took the wrath of God, the logical thing for us to do then is to live for Him. If my eternal eternal destiny has been forever changed, if I am cleansed from my sin, if I am forgiven if I have a new nature and I'm a new creature in Christ, if I've been reconciled back to God now because of what Christ has done, then it makes sense that the reasonable thing for me to do is say, God, I now will live for you. I'll live for you. Here's my life as a pastor, as a plumber, as an engineer, as a factory worker, as a homemaker. God, here is my life. Take it and use it. It's my reasonable service. And then he says this, There's some demands of this obligation. He says, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. It means to be pressed into the mold of this world. Can I tell you something? Uh, This world is hard, man. It's hard. And we are constantly bombarded by the world on how we should look, how we should dress, how we should act, how we should spend our money, what's important in life, where our priorities ought to be. And it's easy to to be swept away in that. And Paul says, wait a minute. If you've given yourself as a living sacrifice, don't be conformed to that. Don't be conformed. Don't let them press you into that mold. But be transformed. Look at the end of the verse. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word transformed there is the word metamorpho. We use it for the idea of a metamorphosis. You know, when the, when the caterpillar becomes a beautiful butterfly, you know, the thing that just, he turns into a butterfly. And some of you folks who have younger kids, you'll understand that. Others won't. It doesn't matter. The idea is the caterpillar goes into a butterfly. It transforms. It completely changes from one form to the other. And Paul says this, when I understand what God has done for me, and I give him my life back, God is going to do a work where he completely transforms me into another form. And and it's much bigger than a caterpillar and a butterfly. That word is the same word that's used in in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, where Jesus Christ is transfigured before the disciples. And when he is, his glory shines forth. That's the same word. And Paul later in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, says that we, beholding his glory, are changed. We're transformed from one glory to the next. What God is saying here, for those of us who surrendered to him, is this. As I surrender, the Spirit of God renews my mind. He does this. He makes a change. And what he's doing is this. He is allowing me to become more and more like Jesus Christ. More like him. And when I do, the glory that shines out from me is not my glory. It's Christ. We are to be a light to make a difference. Can I tell you something? The world doesn't want to see you. The world needs to see Christ. And for those of us who present our bodies as a living sacrifice, God, this is it's about you. Take me, transform me, use me. He will use us to make a difference, to show the world Jesus Christ. That's what they need today. They don't need sacrifices. They don't need ritualism. They need to see Christ. And as we're transformed, that's what God does in our life by his spirit. And then watch as we close this morning what it produces. He says, that I may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. My mind is changed and I'm able now to test or prove what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. When I surrender to him, the Spirit of God does a work in my heart and life and I can see, okay, Lord, here's what you want for me. Here's what your will is. Here's what you want me to do. And listen to me, everything else doesn't matter. We, We think this world is so important, Right? But the fact is, everything that we know, touch, handle, it is all passing away. All of it. And the Bible makes it clear that he that doeth the will of God will abide forever. And so, the most important thing is knowing what God's will is. Lord, what is it you want me to do? And as I'm transformed, he shows me what it is. I seek to build his kingdom. It's not about me. It's about him. And to know God and his will, it is good. All the smoke and all the fat of religious activity can never replace the pleasure of God would have from the living sacrifice of our own will. And so this morning the question is this. Are you like Saul or are you like Paul? For some of us this morning, we are so entrenched in doing this and doing that, and I have my religious stuff that I do this. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things. But if you're using that to replace obedience from your heart to the response of God's voice, you're wrong. It's not pleasing in His sights. And many of us are like Saul. Saul. We just say, okay, God, I'm doing this so I can ignore my attitude. I can ignore my spirit. I can ignore my integrity, my character. This says, no, it's not what I want. I want a living sacrifice. I want you to hear my voice. I want you to listen. I want you to obey. And when you do, I will use you for my honor and glory. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.